What's up, everyone? Welcome to the Empowered X Podcast. I am your host, Two Eagles Marcus, Tiwa Pueblowan Indigenous Native, founder and publisher of Empowered Business Magazine and Empowered Talent Diverse Job Board. Today, I have with me Sharla Stevens and Ancestors, owner and founder of Healing Racism in Schools, LLC. Charlotte transforms schools into anti-racist, thriving institutions for academic excellence and social justice, while developing school leaders to bring out the best in students of color and help deter white students from sustaining or embracing white supremacy. Welcome to the Empowered X podcast, Sharla. It is amazing to have you here today. So thank you so much to Eagles Marcus for having me um, today. Uh, I really appreciate it. Um, to everybody viewing me, don't judge my background. We're here to learn from what I have to say, right? Let's all just be compassionate. This is no judgment so my name zone. Is yeah, right? No judgment zone, right? <laughs> so you see a little bit of my kid's Pokemon blanket back there, but you know, whatever. Um, so my name is Charlotte Stevens and the ancestors, and I include the ancestors because my ancestors are often ignored disrespected, disregarded. And so it's very important to me that they are acknowledged and that they walk with me. And that is a source of inspiration for me. And um, when I think about the ancestors, I think about the way that they were disenfranchised from having a solid education and how if you were taught to teach somebody who was enslaved to read, you know, you could, you could risk, you're risking your life and they were also risking their lives. So throughout history, um, Black people and other marginalized communities have fought and died for access to education. And what we see is that that is still the case. So my inspiration for starting Healing Racism in Schools comes from my own experience of being a, a Black girl in public school. And, and initially, I loved school and I was tested for, you know, being in gay and the gifted and talented classes or whatever. But what ended up happening was I picked up on all those subtle messages that were being conveyed to me as a black girl that I did not matter, that my history did not matter, that I was not um, the favored people of society. I didn't look the way that I would, that the favorite people looked and I probably would not be able to accomplish and to uh, achieve what society expected of successful people. And the message became clear to me that as a black person, I was not valued. And as a woman, I was not valued. And then later on, as somebody who identifies as queer, I was not valued, but it really hit me around being black. And I really felt a lot of shame around being black. And I remember being, I wanna say kindergarten, the first time I heard that my ancestors had been owned by white people was such an source of, 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 of shame for me. And at the time I had a best friend who was white and I didn't want to tell her, I didn't want to like share this information. Like, Oh my God, this whole thing of like slavery used to, it used to exist. But that was like the beginning of my story, or at least that's what schools told me was the beginning of my story. And how could I feel anything other than shame around the fact that my, my ancestors were enslaved and not only that, but never honored or celebrated, never like, Oh my God, you know, this horrible thing was done to your people. Like, we're so sorry. It was never, you know, your, your people contributed so much. They, you know, they, they built Wall Street, they built the White House, they sold the first American flag, like they've invented so much, like none of that. So it was just, it was secretive, it was shameful. And that was something that I, you know, I was aware of in kindergarten. So that stayed with me. Um, and I had a lot of racist experiences at, throughout school. I, I talk about on my podcast how in third grade, you know, we used to sing a patriotic song after saying the Pledge of Allegiance, which is super racist. But then the song that they taught us was blatantly racist, which was Dixieland. 
So I was one of the few black girls in class. I had a, a friend named Dixie. So I would frequently pick this song. And this song is about the good old days of enslavement, you know, picking cotton. So it wasn't until years later that I'm reflecting on that, about how traumatic, about how psychologically um, traumatic that was for me as a, one of the few black girls in this class to be singing a song reminiscent of the abuse, the kidnapping, the genocide, the pedophilia of my people. So um, all of that to say, I barely graduated high school, right? So my, my high school was investigated for being racist and it was found to be racist. And, and that's great that they discovered that. But in the meantime, the repercussions of that were people like me fell through the cracks. And I remember my college counselor never talking to me about college. I remember, you know, the way that my teachers just kind of were like, you know, just, just learn some, learn a little trade. Um, and granted, I'm middle class. My, both of my parents have graduate degrees. Um, and not, I'm not saying that in the sense of I'm better. I'm saying it in the sense that the school should have seen potential and that I have access to things, but they didn't. So they just, they just decided that, that the narrative that they know of, of black people was just my narrative as well. Even though my dad, you know, went to Stanford and was a lawyer. My mom has two master's degrees from Berkeley. It's like, there's no reason why I, I shouldn't be college bound. So um, I barely graduated. I went on to De Anza college and can I, I really stop you for a second? What city and what city and state were you in? When San Jose, this? San Jose, California. So okay. California, that's supposed to be so liberal. That's supposed to be so progressive. You know, yeah. San Jose is really close to the Bay Area. And it was very, very racist and very, very white centering all of that. Now, your school district uh, was a so it was majority white. Like how many in your class? How many black students were there? God, it was it was four percent black. My school was 4% black. 4%? Um, 4%. So four out of a hundred of us were, were black. So it was, it was, it was, uh, it was horrible. It was a horrible experience. What did, um, um, when, when that, when they, when they, they would make you sing that song, like, how did it make you feel like physically? I mean, at the time I didn't know that I didn't get it. Right. Like, yeah. just like when you, like I, I used to watch a lot of Warner brothers and Bugs Bunny and I didn't get all the racist references at that time either. And now that I'm, now that I watch it, like with my kids, I'm like, Oh my God, that's racist. That's racist. Right. So at the time yeah. I didn't get it, but it wasn't until later when I was just like, I had two white teachers so between, between the two of them, somebody should have had some reference for, you know, it, it, it's, it's, it's within the lyrics of the song, you know, uh, which we were back in the days of cotton. Good old days are not the good old days are not forgotten or just it's within the song. So betrayed. Um, is how I felt because these are the people that are supposed to keep me safe and that are supposed to be educating me and not putting me in a position where I'm making, I'm the butt of my own joke, right. Or I'm the butt of like society's joke, like the little, the little pickaninny singing like slavery carols. So, um, well, there, you know, the from the perspective they're just like, well, that's our history. That's our white history. You know, that's our American history. And I mean, I imagine that's what they're thinking, but, um, it's traumatic. And I think oh, that that's yeah. the, uh, understandably, because, you know, I'm, I'm native American. And when I, my school district was, I mean, I went to Rockford high school in, in, in Michigan and we're talking, yeah. it wasn't even a percent non-white. So wow. I grew up like with this real, um, just, you know, I was around white people all the time. I wanted to be white. It was like, mm -hmm. I felt alienated, even though I was, most, I mean, I was, I would say I was accepted and I was, I was, you know, people didn't really, for the most part, I wasn't like ostracized, but there definitely was, um, not a lot 
for me to know about my own history and relation. And I, you know, when I think about what I learned in school, it didn't like occur to me that, that my people were systematically wiped out. Like mm-hmm. that wasn't expressed. Like it didn't occur to me. I couldn't even, I was just like, Hey, it's the history of our country. This is what happened. Shrug. You know, I'm mean, like, right. because, because we were taught that was what was ha- what happened. And I wouldn't even think that what really happened because they didn't say, well, you know, the, the, uh, North America was invaded. There was people existing here having a, a life that they were just like living. And then all these white people invaded the continent and wiped out 10 million native Americans leaving 270,000. Also known uh, as genocide, also known as genocide. Exactly. And, but, right. But, we'll, you we'll know, about all day when we learned about, when we learned about uh, Hitler and when we learned mm-hmm. about, Right. That genocide, it was like, those were terrible people. Crystal clear. Yeah, absolutely. But when it came to the United States, it was like, you know, the the white people were trying to escape other white people that were trying to oppress them. Mm-hmm. And then they invaded another country, committed genocide. And then the way they, they demonized the people that were, in, were defending their territory. It's like, stand your ground, right? Exactly. Like, right? Like, if somebody comes into your house, what are you going to do? You're going to stand your right. ground. But then, but then it's all about wiping out the natives. And even the way we tell that story, how the West was won. I mean, that was the play that we did in my school. And it's like, it wasn't about how the natives were genocided, right? It was how the West was won. Like exactly. that's a totally and manifest destiny and being a pioneer. So the way that we frame it and then with, within California, it was all about the missions. And I remember fourth grade, we had to study a mission. We had to reconstruct it and like make your own little diorama. A lot of times they did it out of sugar cubes. And the whole story was, you know, we're teaching, they were teaching natives, you know, Christianity and, and, and teaching them that civilization, right? Even that is still racist and page, and uh, what is it? Patrilineal, not patrilineal, but um, when you're talking down to people, right? It's, it's still disrespectful. Like they're already civilized. But in addition to, that's not what was happening. They were forcing the natives to, to look for gold. And if you didn't find gold, they would cut off your hands or cut off your tongue. And then the, the white people would uh, would wear these hands around, like would have them displayed. So I remember that, right? So again, it's like the missions. We went to go visit a mission. We got to see what life was like back then. People built their little missions out of sugar cubes. It was this really cute project. It was fun. It was like a dollhouse. And then finding out later, it was a slaughter. And so I remember, um, I remember two things. I remember I was in a teacher training and they apparently had taken that standard and changed it. So now instead of doing the, or maybe it was part of it, but you had to write a letter to the Pope uh, petitioning for more missions, right? That was the assignment. And I remember being in, in this training and I was like, what if I don't want to do that, right? Like, what? <laughs> why would I want to petition for more missions? Like, should there should be an option where kids can petition, you know, like, where we should be able to fight against that. Like, why is that the standard where you're making me side with white supremacy, right? And I remember asking that in this teacher training and like, they, had, they hadn't even considered that. Like, just like you said, like, it's just American history, right? The problem when we don't have a diverse teaching force and, and enough people of color, where there's a critical mass, where you feel comfortable enough to speak, is that we're setting our kids up to side with white supremacy without even having an awareness that that's what we're doing. And a lot of these good white people will say that I'm totally against that, but then don't have the capacity and the experience and the, I don't know, the knowledge to recognize that you're, that you're doing it consistently. Like the, the, the curriculum is saturated in it. And unless you're looking at it with a critical eye, you're going to miss it. So let's so. talk about the education in relationship to the First Amendment and how now 
uh, um, I don't even know what they're called, but the, the Trump supporters, I guess that's what I can call them. They are in an uproar about the First Amendment in relationship to the deplatformization of Trump. And even though that the First Amendment does not protect the incitement of violence or the incitement of, uh, uh, of um, you know, of violence. So he literally incited violence in an insurrection against a democracy and the capital of, your United, of our United States. But then at the same time, Trump is like is saying First Amendment, but then he creates the presidential 1776 commission that wants to make the education patriotic and not tell the truth of what really happened. So how how is it that this group of people are so, um, uh, they, you know, they go against their own, what they say. It's just like whatever they want to be right is the right way to go. And it doesn't matter. The truth doesn't really matter. No, the truth doesn't doesn't matter this you you know this right as um as a native american person i know this is a black, as a black person our country's never been founded in truth right i mean yeah. we, we, talk, when we talk about um like i don't let my kids say the pledge of allegiance and and i talked about this with one of my classes it's like there's a line in there like with liberty and justice for all i'm like that's not true like in what world right um when we talk about hard work will get you rewards. It's like, well, my ancestors worked harder than everybody seven days a week, you know, around the clock and we don't have nothing to show for it. So that's not true. Um, all men are created equal. That's not true. So I feel like we're founded on a false, like fallacy. Like we're, we're founded on this, on notions that we, ideals that maybe we one day will aspire to be, but we've never been. And we project one image to the rest of the world, right? Of who we say we are, but but those of us at the bottom, those of us who've been genocided, um, slaughtered, know who we really are, right? So um, I think that's very consistent with, with who America and who Americans are, we, they, um, especially white America. White America lives um, you know, with the cognitive dissonance. They, they live in like, they, they, they're able to look at something and, and not see it um, and, and, and justify. And I think that part of being white in this country is that like, I want to say mental illness. I'm just going to go ahead and say it, but a, a mental illness where you, where you cannot, where you have to lie to yourself to sleep at night. Um, you have to say that there's something wrong with these people in order to justify their situation in order for you to be like, well, I have, they don't. Um, it's because they're bad. It's because something's wrong with them. Even though all the data can be thrown in your face. You know, if you have an ethnic sounding name, you're not going to get the job interview. You know, if you're a white person who has a record, you're going to get the job over somebody who doesn't have a black person who doesn't have a record. All the data can be thrown in your face and you can still be in total denial of it and say, no, I'm good. They're bad. So to me, this, we're, this is what America's always been about. The way that we say, even with our schools, like you always see in people's like little equity statements, you know, we, we believe that we can educate every child. Like we believe that, that, that every child, you know, um, can be successful. And yet the data consistently shows that, you know, black and brown kids are not successful. So then you must believe that there's something inherently wrong with us or you're, you're just not serving us. Which one is it? So that's what the country's always been about. It's never been about morals, values, integrity, like laws. Like it's always been about white supremacy. It's not about, we're not a democracy. It's not in God we trust. It's in white supremacy we trust. So white supremacy will manipulate itself however it needs to, to sustain and maintain white supremacy. And so hypocrisy or facts, so hypocrisy is part of the name of the game. It's part of who we are as Americans. And facts don't matter. 
facts don't matter. And that's, that's how we can turn in the genocide of the Native Americans and the demonize the Native Americans and then, and then make it into the, how the West was won instead of how horrible it was that people came over here and decimated these nations. Like I saw a map and you probably know the map, but it's, it's a map of the United States with just all the tribes, mm-hmm. right? Without, without the states, but like the way it, it was and the fact that we don't start there. Like I was a history teacher. We don't start there when we talk about U.S. history. And, and how do we not start there? You know, so I think it's very consistent. I think that part of being a white American and, and being, being an American is that disillusion. You talked about it as a Native American growing up, the disillusionment for you. I, for me, when you were, talk, when you were speaking about, I didn't understand it was genocide. I didn't understand it was annihilation. I feel the same way learning about enslavement. I didn't understand that that was pedophilia. I didn't understand that that was mass rape. I didn't understand that that was um, genocide. I didn't understand that that was people being slaughtered for 400 years. So of course, of course we didn't understand that because we are not into our schools do not want to teach our kids to be empowered, especially our kids of color. They don't want to give them any real heroes. That's why, I mean, God bless Martin Luther King. I, I respect him and I love him. But there's a reason why he has a holiday and Malcolm X doesn't. We don't want people to know about Malcolm X. We don't want people to know about Black Panthers. We want people to know about the Brown Berets or anybody who fought back. We don't talk about the Haitian Revolution. We don't talk anytime that we won, <laughs> we're not highlighting that. So Short, the, the, short, the, short, the short answer is this is what America's always been about. You know, speaking about MLK, uh, it, it just was uh, celebrated yesterday. Now, I believe we should celebrate MLK, but I am at odds with saying happy Martin Luther King Day because he was assassinated. So that is no, that is no time to be happy. It's a time to remember what he stood for. And um, when I see a lot of the organizations that are publishing or, or, or leveraging his imagery and his words and sharing memes or, or whatever that they're making, but then when you look at the makeup of their organization, right. they're, not, they're not standing by those words. They're just exploiting the opportunity to give the, uh, you know, the, the visibility or the like, oh, yeah, we care. But tomorrow we're just back to business as usual. It's just like the Black Lives Matter signs on everybody's yard. It's just like the safety pin that people used to wear. It's performative allyship. But when it really comes to doing the work, I mean, for most white people, you're going to have an identity crisis because it, everything that you know about whiteness and everything that you believe about whiteness is is going to be, you know, under a critical eye and 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 a lot of times blown up. So I think that it's yeah, it's it's, it's much easier to just put up a meme than it is to actually reflect on am I doing anything to manifest this dream? Because the fact that he had this dream of what, 65, 68, like it's how many, how many decades has it been? And we still haven't manifested his dream. He would be, he would have been 90 or in his nineties. If he was alive today, his dream still not manifested. So. And one of the, one of the other things too, is I see a lot of people post the quote about, uh, you know, I, I can't quote the quote, but it's, it's about, um, you must use love to fight out the darkness essentially. God. And that's just, to me, it's like, well, you know, he said that before he was assassinated. Uh, and to use that to continue the whitewash against mm-hmm. black people now, as they are still fighting for equality and, and not, and all of us still fighting for equality and uh, equity. And just to say, you know, don't do anything like just, just, keep chilling. It'll happen eventually when we decide to let you wait, into wait, wait, our wait. world. But mm-hmm. 
it's still, it's, you know, you have to take action and I'm not saying take violent action, but you can't be passive about it. You, it has to be consistent and it has to be action. And, and, and the, the older he got, uh, you know, his the more radical, well, the more expressive he got, yeah. he got more expressive. And that's what led to his assassination was that he became a threat because initially his, he was his legacy has been whitewashed. And, yeah. and we know that in, in letter to Birmingham jail, he says, you know, that these white moderates are always telling us to wait. Right. And it's really easy for you to tell us to wait. So he, he called out the church. You know, he definitely spoke up, but his legacy has been whitewashed. And the way I, the way I look at that quote is, you know, when it says, only, you know, um, only love can drive out hate. Yeah, I have a deep love for my people. That's the love that uh, that motivates me. And that deep love for my people will have me fighting. It's just like the way a mother loves her children. Like that doesn't that's not all hearts and rainbows. Like sometimes that love is a tornado. So um, we can all use that quote to to our advantage. But yeah, my love for my people is what will keep me driving out the darkness. But it's not just like kumbaya with the KKK, you know, (laughs) but it's not. So, okay. Now, when we think about what's happening now and how the Republicans are calling for unity uh, and and that is going, but they don't want the accountability. And that's just like with the history, what we've been Mm -hmm. taught in schools is like, hey, hey, natives, I know we took all of your land, but that was 400 years ago. Can we just, can we just get, get, get old? Can you just get over it now? I mean, right. Or, and it's like or, the people who oppress you and abuse you, then you get to call for unity, but you never like acknowledge you. Because the reason why my business is called Healing Racism in Schools is because healing is an ugly process, yes, right? But we yes. don't just get to the point where we're just like, where we just say like, oh, it's fine now, right? Because like, like, what I feel like a lot of white folks do is like, they spend so much time in their racism. And then they get to a point where they're like, okay, I'm going to be open to people of color. And then they expect that people of color are just going, are just waiting with open arms. Like I've been waiting for you. Like, just come on in where it's like, no, you have a lot of reconciliation to do. And for me personally, I may never call you a friend. I may never like the uh, most white people. I will not, we're we're not going to get to friend status. We might get to the status where you're not harming me. We might get there. I don't know if we will get to the status where you're actually benefiting me. And that's, that's the reality of our history. Like there's so much pain and so much stuff to unpack. And, and, and what, what bothers me and, me, and you can probably relate to this too, being Native American, is that learning your own history is traumatic. Learning what happened to your people, learning you know, the decimation, learning the savagery, learning the brutality, and especially in, in when you hold it up against to the, the lies, right? The, the lies that they tell about your people. They demonize your people and, and make whites heroic. And in the meantime, it's, it's the other way around and it's, and it's horrific. So I, I really get pissed off because so many white people don't understand my passion, my rage, because they don't know their history. You don't know what you've done to my people. You don't know, you know, about the pedophilia. You don't know about the mutilation. You don't know about having us in zoos. You don't know about the Tuskegee experiment. And because you don't know that, you don't understand my passion. And it pisses me off that you're ignorant to your own people's brutality. It, it, it makes me mad that I have to know it. I have to be traumatized by it. But there's a, there's a total ignorance within the white community about who they are as a people, what they've done, how they acquired, you know, what they have. Because I know for and it's really nice to be talking to somebody negative because we I, I just feel so many... Um, commonalities, but I know when I see white wealth, I'm just like, how much of that is reparations? How much of that should be in my community? And I'm sure that when you see all this damn private property, you know what I mean? You're like, what the hell is this? So it's just. So, you know, when we, when we talk about gaslighting and we talk about <laughs> everything we're talking about, 
I want to refer to the Constitution of the United States and the, and the quoted line of uh, the merciless Indian savages whose known rule of warfare is an undistinguished destruction of all ages, sexes, and conditions. Whoa, whoa, whoa. And if this is so sad, I don't know this. That's in the Constitution? Mm-hmm. Can you read that again? Yeah, the full line is, the full, the full sentence is, he ha- or the full paragraph, he has excited domestic insurrections amongst us and has endeavored to bring on the inhabitants of our frontiers, the merciless Indian savages whose known rule of warfare is an undistinguished destruction of all ages, sexes, and conditions. And that's like a perfect example of who gets to set the narrative, right? And the fact yeah. that this is within our within our our legal documents, like, and this is what kills me too when people want to act like white supremacy is not embedded in our documents because a it's right there, and then also you see the same thing when they refer to it is barely referred to, but they refer they refer to the three fifths clause, I believe. Like, I don't think um, I think enslavement is kind of they 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 don't really talk about it; they talk around it, but. And I remember going to Washington when I saw the memorial and I think it was a Jackson Memorial and somewhere in the Jackson Memorial, it says slavery. And it's just, and it was like shocking. And again, you could probably relate to this, but just the way that our history is just, it almost feels like it didn't even happen. It almost yeah. feels like, like a parallel universe because it's like the emperor who's wearing no clothes. It's never acknowledged. It's never acknowledged. And it's just like, how do you not acknowledge like 400 years of free labor, we built every thing, you know, we invented hella things. Like that should be, I'm sorry, I don't curse, but I curse. But I don't know if like, how do you not highlight our inventions? How do you not highlight the things that we built and, and under extreme conditions? Like, so I know for me that when I, whenever I see evidence of it, it's, it's, it's I get emotional because, because I often feel like, I'm screaming into a void, right? Like where it's mm-hmm. like, I, I I know that I'm not crazy. Like this, this is crazy, right? But it's like, but I'm made to feel like I'm crazy because I'm not going along to get along, right? I'm not just acknowledging that the emperor has clothes on when the emperor's, when the emperor is naked, right? And it's just like, and so you get demonized and you get bitten and people want to come for you. Like, why can't you just center whiteness or make white people feel good? Or why can't you just, you know, not, not speak the truth and it's just like why am i being demonized for just repeating what happens right like i'm just telling you what happens yeah. and, and right yeah. like i didn't do it you're being so divisive right now charla <laughs> why are you so angry I'm, why are you yes. so divisive not and not only that but apparently i'm racist too and i'm just like, yeah. you have no definition of oh, what playing the is. playing the all race of, card again charla all of it. how many me. times have you heard that you can count on it <laughs> So, okay, back to your school, your schooling, you were um, barely graduated high school. And then, then what happened? Dianza was an amazing experience. I had a bunch of different professors of a, a variety of different ethnicities. So that was a game changer. And then I had a bunch of different black professors. And then there wasn't just one black history class or one marginalized little ethnic studies class. I had a, a plethora of like blacks in cinema, blacks in literature. Um, and so that, was all I needed to excel. I, I, I did amazingly. So I would take like my math class and my English class, and then I would take a woman's studies class. Um, and so I, having that one class where I could show up fully and talk about the racist, sexist, sex, racist and sexist experiences I just had in my math class, just having that one class where I could process those things allowed me to excel in my other classes. And so that was night and day for me. So 
I was at Deanta, I did really well. I, I brought my grades up. I had like a B average. I became student body president. It was me and about 10 other progressive people. So I want to always highlight, I did not do that by myself. Um, but it was about 10 of us. We had a progressive slate. Um, I was student body president. We passed all this legis- well, student legislation to um, address marginalized communities. So um, I've managed man- manage a budget of over a million dollars with uh, my VP of finance, uh, Lydia Lise Clay. And so that for me was me being empowered. It was me taking agency. It was me finding my voice in a way that in high school, like I cut everything. I, I did not, I was, I was, I knew that people didn't want me there. And so I, I wasn't there, but that was a big difference from I'm going to, I'm going to run for a student government. I didn't know anything about student government. Like mm-hmm. I, I didn't go to Senate meetings a year before, um, but just said, I'm going to do this. And then when I, when I, when I got there, people were like, Oh, you're not going to make it. You're not going to last the whole year. But I did. Um, and it was the first time I found my voice. That was such a huge transition and me developing myself as a leader. So after that, I went to Howard University, which was great because I grew up in a very, very white, you know, area. I had never seen black excellence like that. So to be in Chocolate City um, at Howard was amazing. I graduated on top of my class, summa cum laude. And then I started um, getting into education and I was doing a lot of subbing and working with youth. And what I saw was it was the same, it was the exact same issue. Like in my mind, because I was still so young and green and hopeful, I was like, oh, if education knows the way it's failing, of course it's going to upgrade, right? Of course it's going to be like, oh, if we know that teaching math this way is not working, we're going to find another way to teach math. But then when I came back into these high schools, I'm seeing it's it's the same setup and I'm seeing it's the same kids who are, who are failing. Um, so then I went back to get my, um, my teacher credential on a master's degree and I started teaching history. And that's when I saw how whitewashed the history classes were. And that when I wanted to start, you know, us history with the native Americans, well, that's great, but that's not part of the standards. That's not part of the curriculum. So anytime I'm doing like right by the curriculum and teaching the truth and teaching a, a true multicultural curriculum, that's on the peripheral that's marginalized. That's not, I'm not being graded on that. I'm being graded on how much of the white supremacist curriculum I, I'm, I'm teaching. So as you can imagine that, wrestles with my soul um i feel like you're gonna say something do you want to say do you want to say something um i you know uh, uh, it just is um you know to hear that it's it, it, that you're only graded on the white history that you teach and not the black history it's just it's shameful that that's like that um, and it's shameful because our kids really want the truth. Even the white kids want the truth, but especially our kids of color, right? It's like, because when you do that, you disengage, you disengage the students. You're forcing me to teach a curriculum that my class that is predominantly of color doesn't want to effing hear. You know what I mean? So then, so then when they check out, we blame them. I blame the kids when they're not interested because they know I'm teaching them BS and I'm not teaching them anything that empowers them or prepares them for the racist white supremacist society that they're going to have to exist in. So you're setting me up for failure. You're setting them up for failure. But also to keep the truth hidden. Right. We, you know, it's, it's no wonder people are confused about what's happening when they think then the narrative has just been that um, a bunch of people were escaping oppression and then they came to the United States or to North America for a, to create a new life. Well, they were escaping oppression to put a whole entire another race into oppression and then mm-hmm. created slavery and the, the African dis- diaspora and brought all these, you know, and they turned people into slaves and they molested them, raped them, tortured them, 
treated them like they weren't humans. And then, oh, then they came to their senses and they were so great because they finally realized what they're doing was wrong and released everyone and put them into Jim Crow and created a <laughs> bunch failed. of laws that still allowed them not to do anything. They still weren't allowed to be educated. They couldn't, they couldn't uh, have relations with people outside of their, their race. And that was even until what the fifties, right? 60s, it was uh, the love. Um, yeah. Loving. Loving act. And somebody. And, you know, also when you think about this, too, with Native Americans, Native Americans haven't been United States citizens for 100 years yet. It's going to be 2024. I'm going to be 50 years old. And still not a citizen. Well, I mean, I'm a citizen, but I mean, as Native Americans, as As a a population, we're only allowed to be, okay, before the, um, I don't remember what it's called, the, the Native native citizen act but before that in order to become a citizen if you're a native native american one of the ways is we had to join the military and then you could achieve your citizenship that was one of the ways uh but before it was allowed in all the states it 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 was you know it hasn't been 100 years yet and And it's crazy that we don't but we don't know that i mean because what, what you're saying is so the reason why schools are so important is because that's when the indoctrination starts. That's the reason why our, 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 our community is so ignorant is because nobody is learning true history and the Trump has it his way, you know, that will be maintained. So it, it makes a lot of sense that we are where we are as a nation because of the narrative that's been told. And even as you were talking, when you're talking about what happened to the Native Americans, what happened to my people, that only matters if you see us as people, right? Like when you talk about like, oh, we enslaved these people, we did this to these people, like, when the narrative is, when, when the, the way that we are in this society is that we get peoplehood, even when you think about a person, you think about white people and it, it, it's, it's, it's conditioned that way. It's like, you know, when we describe somebody, we only describe their, their color if they're not white, <laughs> yeah. otherwise call a person, right? Like, white's the standard. White's the standard. And, and so then we do the same thing with American. We think of an American person, we think of, of a white person. So white people are used to seeing themselves as I'm 100%, you know, human, but people of color, Native Americans, I don't know, you know, I don't know how human you are. Black people, I don't know how human you are. And there's all these ways, like even when the phrase like illegal alien, I talked about this in my class too. That's extremely dehumanizing phrase. Um, and, and even at least with, uh, with black people, we're called monkeys, um, which, is, which is still terrible, but monkeys are terrestrial. We're from earth, you know, but illegal alien, you're not even from earth. I mean, how, <laughs> you know what I mean? How, how dehumanizing you're not even that? from earth, man. <laughs> you're not even from earth. So, there's just all these ways that, I mean, I, I saw it. I read this study too. I read this study about how as people of color, so I can identify this as, as, a, as a black girl. So as a little black girl, you know, I'm watching like, like Bart Simpson. I'm watching, um, I, I'm reading Calvin and Hobbes and I'm forced to relate to a little white boy. I'm forced to see yeah. myself in this white boy, right? Yeah. And so for a lot of people of color, we have, we're, we've been forced to see ourselves in, in white people, white men in particular, because that's what we're, we've been shown. And then we have, when that, when that character gets hurt, we feel it. So, so if that kid gets slapped, I, I feel it as though I've gotten slapped. If they get they kicked for a few for a man, right? You get kicked in the, in the, in the, in the, in the balls, like, oh, I feel it like I get kicked in the balls. But what they said is that because, right, I know you can relate to that, right? Um, yeah. They said because, um, because white people, don't have that experience where they're forced to look at somebody native and identify or forced to look at somebody black and identify. They said that within their brain, when they see somebody of color going through pain, 
it doesn't so for so my brain it will register like i actually got hurt in their brain it's like watching like paint dry that that whole that whole part of their brain that's supposed to connect and empathize with seeing a person of color the same way we empathize when we see them it doesn't happen and so that explains why you can watch you know black children be murdered in the streets and nothing happens um as far as that empathy as far as that outrage as far i mean it's, it's crazy to me that we're still talking about who murdered john benet right who murdered this little precious white girl we're still talking about this and in the meantime like black and brown little girls are murdered day and being murdered right now like when it comes to human trafficking and sex trafficking that's us that is us that are being snatched off the streets because we are the ones that are the most um hope we're still there we're so sorry, I don't know if I made it out, but it's us that are being snatched off the streets because we are the ones that are most vulnerable. We are the ones that are the, the that have the least access to protection. So it's just like, yeah, we don't, we don't, we often don't care when it comes to when it comes to to us and and the way that we've condi- we've conditioned white people to where their brains don't even register empathy when it comes to what we're feeling, and you see that in the lack of outrage, you see that in the lack of change. Uh, Association of America Medical American Medical College Colleges, which is aamc.org, published an article on January 6, 2020. And the quote in the beginning of the article is: "Half of white medical trainees believe such myths as black people have thicker skin, less nerve endings than white Mm -hmm. people." An expert looks at how false notions and hidden biases fuel inadequate treatment of minorities in pain. Um, and that even relates to the godfather of gynecology and that he, he would experiment on black women, black slaves, rather black women, mm-hmm. slaves without anesthesia and develop his, uh, his, you know, his gynecological ideas, um, practices based off our torture. Yes. Now with, while it be in 2020 and 40% of white medical students so they, that they have these biases is, they then that comes from the the not teaching of the history and and the, these things should be talked about not if your goal is to maintain white supremacy for so many people the system is working because when we have these biases it means that black people are going to be more likely to die in hospitals, which is what happens, right? Black women are still more like, what, three times more likely, I don't know what it is, but to die in childbirth. Why are we still dying in childbirth? Um, we, we talked, we saw it with Dr. Susan Moore, right? She's a doctor, she died from, from medical malpractice. This is why like, I'm, I'm very preserved about the vaccine because I know that I've seen the studies that have said that when other vaccines came out and they saw that it had detrimental effects on black people, they didn't care because they don't care about black people. So I feel like, and when I know that when, when decisions are being made, if, if, if it's my people who are possibly going to be, you know, getting the short end of the stick, it's like roll, roll out with it. I, I can't trust a, a government that has never shown me that it's trustworthy, that it's never shown me that it, it is, it's had my people in mind. So it's a really crummy position to be in where it's like the government's like, trust me. And it's like, you've never given me a reason to trust you. You know, like that's, you've never given me a reason to trust you. So, and this is also what white people just use to justify our mistreatment, right? So like the, they said the same thing when they would like take our children from us and enslavement, that it didn't affect us the same way, that we didn't have the same bonds. So we weren't as heartbroken. And, you know, like they, the, when they're whipping us, when they're killing us, like it's, it's, it's that the lies that white people tell themselves to sleep at night so that you can justify that 
somehow we're stronger. And so when you see us going through hell, it's not as painful as it would be for you. Like white people get to be fragile and white women get to be delicate and they get to be flowers. And I don't get to be that. Like, <laughs> not to mention, like, I couldn't survive. If I was walking through my life being a delicate flower when like everybody just bruises me and steps on me and doesn't value me, like I wouldn't make it. So it's, it's a myth. It's not that, I mean, to real talk, Surviving white supremacy makes me suicidal on a regular basis. It's, it's, it's a key part of my depression. And I think about, you know, I can make all the money in the world and be super successful with my business, but I can't pay for white supremacy to go away. And even when I go on vacation, it's there. Even when I go to my therapy, it's there. There's nowhere I can go to not have to deal with white supremacy. So it's like, it's not that I'm extremely strong, um, that I'm still here. I have given up in a, in a lot of ways. It's just part of part of my giving up was like, I don't care anymore about the repercussions. Like, I don't care anymore about, like, I'm not going to be quiet. I, mm -hmm. I don't care what happens because I'm already like, I'm not, I'm not even sure I want this life. So that puts me in a position where I'm kind of just like, right. <laughs> so like, yeah. I'm going to say what I have to say. And um, I, I even watched it on the MLK special yesterday where he was really, you could see that he understood that his mission was going to kill him. Mm -hmm. or he was going to be killed. But he, he was like, you know, I want my life to be worth dying for. And that's kind of, I'm kind of on that same, that same, that same mission of like, I don't care which one of these white crazy people might come for me. Um, because the reality is, is that whether I speak up or not, y'all might come for me. I could be asleep in my home, like Brianna. I could be eating yeah. ice cream on my couch, like do 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 was shot in his apartment. It doesn't matter. You're still coming for me. Um, but I want to make sure that my life was worth something. And if I'm already like suicidal or I'm already like this life, then let's make the most of it, you know, yeah. while I have it. So it's not that I'm extremely strong. Um, it's, it's, it is heartbreaking. It is every day of my life is, 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 is painful. But what I decided was I'm going to do my best and live as long as I can for my kids, for them. But if it was on me, I don't know that there's a reason to keep doing this because I don't feel hopeful. Even with my business, like I, I, I do my business to keep my sanity. I do my business because it was a number of um, black educators who have my back. Like there was like one in my, in my junior high who had my back. There was one in my high school who had my back. So I feel that, that, that debt and not like in a bad way, but like, I want to, I want to give back. Right. But, but I also see that because before I thought it was ignorance. I thought it was just, people just didn't know. And if they knew it'd be different, but now I'm convinced that they know and you know, how else are we going to get our, our jails full of black and brown people if, if not by miseducating them, right? So we have to miseducate them. We have to set them up to, to fail so that it's much, and then we know that there's no op opportunity for them uh, without school. So then we know that they're going to turn to crime because that's where, that's where the access is. And then it's that much easier to get you in our jails. And then now Target and, and Mary Kay and Macy's can then, you know, utilize you for free labor. So it's like, it's working. It's, it's so when I think about little old me or, or little old us fighting against the system that has, has been working for 500 years, I don't have a lot of faith that I can make a real substantial change. But I also know that if I don't do this work and I'm not pushing this boulder uphill, I'm going to go freaking crazy. Like it, it's, it's how I keep my sanity. Um, even though I'm not sure I'm keeping my sanity to be quite honest. So it's not about being stronger. I think that white, it's just like when I'm, I have my baby when I was in labor. It's like, you don't know what you can do until you have to do it. 
Yeah. And so it's like white people, you know, they, they're not in a position where they have to do it, where you have to wake up every day knowing that you are hunted, knowing that you are hunted and hated, but you still have to go out there and, and perform. Um, they don't know their strength because they haven't been asked to, to, to harness it, but we're not stronger. And I think that's another way that we're dehumanized. I'm not a super Negro, goddammit. I'm, I'm a real person who hurts and, and who, who gets fatigued and who gets depressed. Like, I haven't really done much this whole month, you know? Like, I was, I was hustling in December, but this whole month, I've just been in recovery. I'm, I'm exhausted. Yeah. I'm depressed. So, I'll, I'll breathe. <laughs> yeah, that's I'll take a minute. You can say things. That's a lot to, um, a I, lot. Mean, I, I hear you, but I don't, I mean, I have my own and I never can try to, um, you know, I, I hear you. And that's, that was really powerful. I thank you for your honesty. Um, but we do, it's essential that we keep doing the work and we keep having these conversations and that we keep um, creating these connections between each other uh, mm -hmm. because community is important. And I don't look at, I don't look at, um, you know, I, I look back at where my people are, have come this year. Uh, we had the most native Americans in Congress six. That's an all time high. Uh, and, uh, you know, I had two images that really stand out to me from this blur of what I called red, white, and anger that we've been looking at since January 6th. Uh, and one of them is Representative Deb Haland, who is from New Mexico. She's from the Laguna Pueblo. My people are from the Taos Pueblo. They're about an hour and a half apart. But she oh, wow. Is, um, She's having her second term and uh, she was fully dressed in native clothing. She's wearing turquoise necklace, silver and, and embrace, embracing our heritage and representing. And to see that imagery from somebody that's so connected to my bloodline from the earth and uh, then the other image is the image of the soldiers sleeping in Statuary Hall in the Capitol. Now, the reason why that stands out to me is number one, it's, it's just incredible to see that our soldiers are in there ready to protect democracy in the Capitol. But the second reason is because there's a statue in there of Pope and Pope led the Pueblo revolt in 1680 340th anniversary was in 2020 it was august 10th 1680 he he led the revolt against the spaniards who had colonized the pueblos and they had enslaved and tortured them and tried to wipe out our history and our culture and after he went to prison with other leaders uh, he was released and then he hid in the Taos Pueblo where my people are from and planned the, the revolt and they were successful in their struggles. And then, so to see the protector of my heritage and culture 
as a sculpture overlooking today's protectors of democracy. Mm-hmm. The, the imagery is striking. And then with the, the six Native Americans in Congress and, 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 and not yet still have been 100 years citizens as, a, as a, the original people of this land. I mean, my, my family, my father and my grandfather and his grandfather, his grandfather, they lived in a structure that's still standing. It's over a thousand years old. No kidding. It's an apartment. It, it's the, if you look up at TausPueblo.com or .org, you'll see it. But that structure What's it called? is TausPueblo, T-A-O-S-P-U-E-B-L-O.org. But even wow. if you just Google Taos Pueblo, so that structure has been standing there over a thousand years. Yet my people haven't been United States citizens for 100 years. Wow. And my father, my grandfather lived in that. My grandfather had no American education whatsoever. My father had an eighth grade education. I have a, a high school education. But, but I grew up in a significantly different, I grew up in Rockford. So I grew up in a privileged area and my life experience was completely different than if I'd have grown up mm-hmm. on, the, on the reservation. But I, I feel like I have an obligation now to use my knowledge and, mm-hmm. and what, I've, uh, what I've, I've learned and my knowledge and my voice to help educate and connect and create, create a modern day, uh, you know, a, a modern day revolution or a modern day just connect people like you with other people and, and just keep the momentum going so we can have a better world for all of us. And it's, it's a long game, though. I don't expect to. It's, it's to a marathon. Make, all you can do is you, I think you can make your progress in your lifetime and then you pass the baton. Exactly. Like that, that's what I can do is I can help elevate and amplify others, people's voices and, and try to try to create more unity more community and more connection. Let me pause you on that note. I have to take a quick break. I'll be right back. <laughs> okay. Me too. <laughs> all right. Now we're back from that break. I'll edit that out. <laughs> no worries. <laughs> Keep it at 100. You know, this, I mean, seriously, like this is the time for like, everybody's just keeping it at 100. They're like, I don't care. I'm just going to show up. However I show up, whatever the video quality is, just get it done. <laughs> and I think that that's important because I, on a quick note, a quick side note, I heard somebody say that perfectionist is a tool of white supremacy in the sense that people of color often are made to feel that unless it's perfect, don't, don't put it out there. Yeah. And one of the things I do with my brand is like, yeah, it's, I'm, I'm not waiting. We don't have time for perfect. People are dying. So just like when you, you know, when you were like, Oh, like the camera's going to be on. It's like, yeah, I just woke up 15 minutes ago. I don't have any makeup on. I barely have my eyebrows together. Right. But it's just like the message is, is too important for me to be caught up in appearances. And so I think it's really important for us to be authentic and we're all dying for authenticity. There's so much bullshit, right? There's so much yeah. veneer. So, well, even, you know, even the privilege of perfect, right? Not everyone yeah. has the access to the tools. They don't have the best equipment. They don't have the lighting. They don't have exactly. budgets for that stuff. They don't have the best, whatever it is. They don't have, they don't have the knowledge because maybe they weren't given the access to knowledge. Maybe they don't have internet. There's, there's right. so many reasons why it's, it, you know, you just gotta, you gotta do it. The message is what matters. That's, that's the ultimate thing is everything is the message is what matters. And I think too, that like part of what 
I mean, we're, we're, we get taught that A, it has to be perfect. And we also get made to feel that whatever we have is not good enough and no one's going to want it. And that keeps us from stepping into positions of leadership that, ke- that keeps us from, from leading our people to something better. So don't wait. I, like, I'm really grateful for my experience of being student body president, like I said, because it put me in that position where I had to like have the audacity to think that I was worth listening to. And you have to believe that you're worth listening to, to post or to, to have a workshop, to put something out there. Yeah. So that's something I would definitely say to my people, all of our people is like, don't wait for perfection and you're way better than you think you are and just do it. Like we're, we're, the whole idea that we have to be twice as good to go half as far, you know, when we see white men doing like C minus work, and doing great. And so I, I'm, I'm here to, to believe that I can do C minus work too and, and still do really well. I'm, I don't have to wait for everything to be perfect. I can have typos and still get, you know, a, a giant, giant following. So just do it, people of color, like, be, you know, and part of what white supremacy does is it disempowers us and makes us feel that we can't do it. And I see it with my students all the time. And that's, that's the mind fight it. You know, like they wouldn't spend as much time annihilating your people and my people if we weren't powerful and bad as hell. Like if, if there wasn't something amazing about us, they would you wouldn't invest this much energy because that's a waste of your time. So that alone speaks to how outstanding we are as a people because you've invested this much energy in annihilating us and, and stopping us because you find us threatening. So there you go. <laughs> <sighs> so. I want to talk to you now about your consulting practice and what is it that, what is your, what is what are your courses like and, and how is it working to better, for better outcomes? So it all came from being in these schools and waiting for professional development, waiting for these conversations to, to take place. And then I would always be bringing it up. I would always be commenting on it. Um, and then, um, and just, addressing all the racism on campus and rocking the boat in various ways. That's another story. But I, I, and then I started looking for it. Like, okay, so let me look at further organizations that could, that could help these schools. And then when I would find them, a lot of times it was just so watered down. It was so diversity and equity, but we never mentioned white supremacy. We never, you know, say genocide. We, we don't, we don't say the, the words that really have the teeth to it. Um, so then I was like, oh my God, like it, it started to dawn on me that this was mine to do. Right. And I kept fighting it. Oh, my God, I ducked and dodged. Like I was really not trying. Like the universe was like, yeah, you need to go do that. And I was just like, no, I'm not going to do that. Um, but the universe was like, yes, you are. So I started my consulting business and I was still kind of I, I didn't really take it seriously, seriously till last year when it was just like, OK, burning all the bridges, all the eggs in the basket. And so it looks like a variety of things because because at the my end goal is to empower students, right? My end goal is for students and families of color to be empowered and to really like have black excellence and black joy throughout the education system. So what I feel like is an obstacle to that is the administration, the teachers that do not have adequate training when it comes to really understanding their participation in white supremacy, their participation in anti-blackness, their how, you know, it's not enough to just be like, because most white people are just like, you know, as long as I'm not saying the bad, the bad words, as long as I'm not actively participating and, you know, s- sitting on somebody's neck, that I'm not a bad person. Like I have, yeah. I have friends of all different races and all this other, you know, crap where they just like, oh, I, I have black friends and I'm not bad and I'm not participating in it. Oh, sorry. Jeez Louise, stop calling me people. I apologize. This is why I wanted to do it on my iPad, not my phone. But yeah. a lot of white people just believe that, um, if I'm not out there, you know, storming the Capitol, I'm a good white person and not realizing that 
these people could not storm the Capitol if it wasn't for, you know, massive amounts of white people who have who have sanctions, you know, this white supremacist belief. So the whole notion that, you know, um, Ibram Kendi talks about is you have to be anti-racist, you know, not just like, oh, it's not racist. Like, and and I would say you have to be anti-white supremacy, which is where I'm glad that we're we're going to that Mm -hmm. mindset. So anyway, most white teachers don't know they're white. They think they're an individual. Um, they, they don't understand that when you stand in front of a classroom, especially a classroom of color, that you bring all your whiteness with you. You, you bring the police with you. You bring Social Security or, or you bring um, Child Protective Services with you. All the white I, I, um, ICE with you, all the white governmental organizations like you represent that. They don't understand, you know, their participation in, in Native American genocide or the, what happened to my people. And there's a disconnect of white people even connecting to their people. Right. So like they don't really connect with their ancestors a lot of the times or they don't connect to who they are ethnically or who they've been as a people. Um, part of being white is you've you've separated yourself from that. Like I'm not Italian. I'm not Jewish. I'm not Irish. I'm white. You know, whatever the hell that means. So. Um, so I work with with administrators and with teachers to see that. And, and I have a three part uh, three part series. So for right now, like I'm, I'm currently working with um, San Francisco, a school in San Francisco um, Unified School District, and it's over the course of the school year. And so we start with identity, um, and then we move into curriculum, and then we move into staff and students. And identity is about, you know, identity. Who are you? And so because uh, because we all teach from our identity and we have our, our, perspe- our, our perspective is shaped by how we identify. And so getting people to go back to, you know, what was your first experiences, especially with racial identity? What was your first experience, you know, understanding your own racial identity and then understanding other people's racial identity? Because the, what, this, what the studies show is that by three to five years old, that is being established and the white supremacist um, or the white idea of white superiority is established within white kids, you know, by the time that they're three to five years old. So it's, it's as much a part of them as it is within white adults. So the same stubbornness you see with white adults and not wanting to acknowledge white supremacy, that's already established in white kids by the time they're three to five. So by the time, so they're starting, they're starting school with that mindset, right? By preschool, they're already within their, I'm better than you. Um, my daughter saw it on day one in kindergarten where a little white boy told her, I don't talk to people with brown hair, curly, cur- curly hair, brown hair, brown eyes and brown skin. You know, she's in kindergarten day one. She's, she's dealing with this. So, what? Um, so my, um, I work with teachers, yeah, dealing with identity. And even with myself, like I was, I was black middle class teaching predominantly like um, working class Latinx community. So I can relate to some degree, but not, Fully, and I was still waiting for my, my, my school to prepare me to serve these clients. What do these clients need? What are their unique needs? How can I better relate to them? And just because I'm black, like doesn't mean that like I have all the answers either. So, so all of us need to ex- explore our identity. Who are we? What are we bringing to the classroom? Like as a cisgender person, as somebody who's, you know, who um, is queer, as somebody who has all these different identities, how does that affect how I teach? Um, and then curriculum. I mean, just like we talked about how the Native Americans are, are the, the stories we tell about Native Americans, you know, the stories we tell or don't tell about enslavement, um, who gets highlighted. There was a whole section about inventors I was reading about the, um, about the Industrial Revolution, and there was nobody, no women, nobody of color, all just white men because they invent everything. So how whitewash our curriculum is, you know, who's on our walls. Um, how STEM often wants to think that they're exempt from this conversation, that it's all on history and English to, you know, diversify, but that doesn't even, you know, equate to what happens in science and math, which is total BS because we see in all these tech companies, you know, where, where the money is, right? You know, artificial intelligence and um, uh, uh, climate change, um, 
in technology, those businesses are still primarily, you know, male dominated, still primarily white and Asian. And when we, we don't see a lot of people of color, we don't see a lot of women. And so we also need to be looking at how our sim classes are super racist, how we never highlight. So for example, um, George Washington Carver was a freaking genius. You know, people just think that he discovered peanut butter, which he didn't. What he did was he, we had these poor farmers, like sweet potato farmers, peanut farmers who weren't making no money. And he totally geeked out on like the sweet potato and was like, here's 200 things you can do with the sweet potato. And now <laughs> these farmers are making bank because now my prop, which I thought was stupid, now can do all these things because this black man totally geeked out on this shit and then and then made a big change in agriculture. He should be referenced like Einstein, you know, like, oh, you're no, you're no George Washington Carver. Like we should, you know, what I mean, there's a way that we can start normalizing, <laughs> you know, yeah. like black and blonde, brown excellence if we get right. So like, anyway, curriculum um, across the board, like just basically our curriculum right now is, is anti-black, anti-indigenous. And we could change that to being pro-black, pro-indigenous and not even just like inclusive right because we always want to go well it's all white now instead we'll just make everybody a different color and yay problem solved no i, I want i want to flip it like we don't even need to see white people we don't even need to see you why because we will see you everywhere that's our ought to reinforce constantly let's just have nothing but people of color nothing but marginalized communities everywhere to counter the narrative that we hear that it's just you know everything's white or, or normalizing whiteness why don't we normalize us because like you said you're the original native Amer you're the original american you know black people we're the original people if anybody should be normalized it should be us um so anyway um the curriculum and then staff and students our schools are not psychologically safe for people of color. And the reason why they're cutting your class and don't show up is because they don't feel welcome there. You're asking me to show up, to come, go to a place to be abused, to be mistreated, to be mocked by my peers, to be made fun of. I'm never celebrated. I'm always demonized. You, when somebody's talking or anything goes wrong in the classroom, you want to look at me, you want to blame me. I'm the one getting kicked out of class. I'm the one being suspended. Why the hell would I show up here? You don't value anything about my culture. You don't value anything about my vernacular. You know, you, you, you make fun of us. Like, so our, our students are not safe. Our staff is not safe. We always want to talk about how we want more staff of color, you know, um, to be on our campuses. I was that staff of color. I went hard for my black and brown students. I thought that if I could just, because everybody was like, these students can't be taught. So I taught them and I thought like, oh, if I'm, if I'm teaching them, like y'all are gonna be, gonna be like, yay, go Miss Stevens, like I'm gonna get awards, right? Like, I'll, no, I was, I was demonized. The district came after me because cause I'm, I'm proving you wrong. I'm proving that they can learn, but you're not teaching them. I'm calling you out on your And so that was terrible for me. I, I started getting chest pains. Um, I start. I was out sick for ten days after this. This one white student like came at me with his vitriol. Like I was talking in my class, my AP Gov class about how people of color often have to center white comfort, how we often have to center white comfort. We can't, we can, we have to, we have to say it in a way that doesn't upset the white people. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, yeah. Because white people are deadly. Because when we upset you, you shoot places up. I mean, look what happened to the damn capital. Look, look what most of the mass murders, that's what y'all do. You get mad and then you shoot the place up. You get mad and you kill MLK. You get, that's what you do. So it is always been in our best interest to center and protect, you know, white, comfort and so anyway I'm, I'm saying this in my class like not that passionately but you know i'm, I'm saying it and then <laughs> and the one white progressive kid like i had a bunch of other white kids who were always like giving me shit, but the one there was the one white kid who was like pro bernie um he slams his hand down on the desk and points to me and is like prove it right and it was just so disrespectful but also just like so white man like this is he's a senior he's 17 at this age um and just 
I felt like, like he, in, in, like energetically, he like poisoned me. And, and I don't, I don't know how else to describe it, but I, I felt the energy of when he like slammed his fist down, and he pointed, and it was just like, and just the discrediting, the disrespect. Like, like I know you would never talk to your white male professor like that. You would never come at them like that. Like I have a gazillion degrees. I am so much older than you. Like just who the hell do you think you are telling yeah. me to prove my lived experience? But after that happened, I was sick for 24 hours for no reason. I was throwing up. I had a headache. I didn't go to work the next day. And that's when I talk about how our schools are not psychologically and physically safe. That's what I mean. Like it, it's, it's for real. I'm doing my job. I'm doing it well. And at what cost at what cost i remember coming back after that summer of I mean, black murder which is every summer but it was the one where there was a black pole party and the white police officer was wrestling that little black girl in her little she was in a little orange bikini oh, he's like yeah. he's manhandling her and i and i just oh it just it made like he's a man her, her bikini could come off she's this little girl i'm sure she's terrified like just all of that i was just so messed up and then going back on my campus and like nobody's talking about these things nobody's acknowledging it it's like it's like your family was slaughtered and like people are like good morning how are you it's just it's and that's how i feel like it is being black in this country where we're constantly traumatized but then people like i remember just people asking me at work like how are you it was just like i don't even know how to prepare an answer for that question like how i am is sick of white supremacy how i am is scared for my life but that's not what you want to hear you want me to say i'm fine you know so just that constant ass assault of you don't give a shit about me. You don't me. like you don't you have you don't give a shit about me. You can't even acknowledge how this might be affecting me. You want me to go along and I'm just supposed to perform. I'm just supposed to like I'm supposed to operate and I'm supposed to, to operate the same way every other teacher on campus is operating, but they're not operating under trauma. And then also in a vacuum of any compassion. I remember asking my students like who gets bullied in society. <laughs> and they they were like, oh, the white kids at the predominantly like Hispanic school across the street, they get bullied. And I was like, are you kidding me? <laughs> right? I'm like, any taste that those white kids might get of bullying from those Hispanic kids will be good for, for creating empathy for they understand what people of color go through all the time. And that's often quoted from white people. Like when I'm talking about like, you know, how messed up it is for us, they want to be like, I was white and I was victimized and I was mistreated every day. You don't understand what it's like to be hated for your color. And I'm like, that's that's my <laughs> entire life. And you can move out of that neighborhood and you and you can you can separate yourself from that. I can never escape the potential for white violence. I there's no, it, it only I can only escape it in death, which is why I fantasize about death. That's the only escape I have. I'm never going to escape this. And not only that, but I'm raising children in this. I got a, I got a, a, a nine year old. He's about to be nine. He's an eight year old. He's five foot one. He's eight years old. He's five foot one. People look at that boy and think he's 13. He's eight. Mm hmm. I have to, I have to protect him. That's maddening. I don't even know what your question was. Oh, so anyway, so anyway, it's so all of that to say that I, I do a three-part series, identity, curriculum, and staff and students. Um, I also, it, it, and that's where I start and then I customize. So I'm also doing parent workshops for this, this um, campus. I, this, the principal has me on retainer because she's a new white principal in charge of a black and brown school. Um, I also do, so another thing I created is, is this uh, black and brown wellness in schools forum. And that came from a school that didn't hire me. So not every school is going to, going to do anti-racist training. So I also, again, my end goal is to make sure that the kids are well taken care of. So I created these workshops to empower the families. 
So if you're at a racist school and you're dealing with a racist teacher and the curriculum super racist, how do you navigate that when you mm-hmm. when that's just the school that you go to? Um, so I provided them with a, a bunch of uh, it was a toolkit that was a wealth of information as far as building your self-esteem about who we are and the inventions and Black Wall Street and, you know, um, our hair and all of that. But also like um, parental rights. What rights do you have in, in schools? What rights do you not have? Um, who are the organizations who are advocating for you? Who can you call on? So and then. It was a panel of different people, which is funny because now I'm talking to you. I'm like, oh, I'm going to have you on my panel next time. Um, but it was a panel of different people um, sharing how they advocate um, for, you know, against white supremacy and then, you know, what they would recommend parents to do, et cetera. So it was a panel. It was a toolkit, et cetera. And that whole idea is, again, is just like I want if, if the schools don't hire me, then I'm all about empowering the, the students and yeah. the community. It's like either work with me. You can either work with me or I'm going to work against you because you just told me how you're harming my community and you're and you and you you just said you're not going to go with me and if you don't have a plan then i have a plan right Mm. (laughs) so get it together because i'm not going to allow you to just tell me all the ways that that these kids are being hurt and then you don't you don't take me up on my offer well then i'm going to do what i can to empower and that's what i've done in the past with these schools it's like if you didn't if they didn't get on board then i just mobilize the students um and then the students shut it down so it's like you know, I'm really charming. Just work with me. But not, <laughs> you know, so is the forum something that's available as a recording that other people can watch, or do you only do it live? Or I do have recordings. I'm still trying to figure out all the legalities and everything of making sure that, like, because um, somebody told me you want to sell a licensure, but you don't want to sell the actual recording. But but at the end of the day, I I really just want to get the information out there. Yeah. Um, like I said, that it's it's only been I really just started in October of last year, as far as like. Cause my, my father passed earlier last year, coronavirus, all this stuff happened. Um, but yeah, October is when I've really, really just been like, okay, we're all in. Um, and so that being said is that um, I'm, I'm figuring things out and it's really just been based on what does the community need, right? So that, so the forums came from this need of, of uh, knowing that I had all this knowledge and knowing I wanted to get it to my community, but not know and knowing that they needed it. But then like, how could they get access to it? Unless the schools, like people were asking like, how do I, how can I work with you? But I'm like, your school has to hire me, but if your yeah. school doesn't hire me, then. So I wanted to provide something for people whose schools weren't going to hire me, but still needed. So um, I guess the short answer is yes. Yes. The recordings are available. And because at the end of the day, I just want to get that out there. So I'll, I can figure out the, the legalities because everything's figure outable. So yes. <laughs> and then as far as if people want to be in touch, I have, um, my podcast is called healing racism in schools. Okay. Um, my latest episode is how to talk to young people about what happened at the Capitol. And I'm actually t- talking to my, my seven-year-old, my eight-year-old. So it's, it's a, I'm recording us having a conversation over a meal about what's happening and kind of showing how kids have the capacity to understand these topics. And you just have to break it down. You have to, you know, make it plain for them. So one of the things I would do for my students when I was teaching AP government was like, you know, the principal is like the federal government, but this classroom is like state government. It's local. It's in your face. I decide how I want things to run, but but the principal could shut me down. Like the federal government could shut me down. Right. Mm-hmm. So yeah. um, just making these analogies, like I talked about how when like Trump's acting like a little kid who like lost a game on a playground and it's like, you know, you cheated. Right. Like, you know, instead of just owning that he lost and, and then like the people storming the Capitol is like a bunch of kids storming the principal's office and like shutting down 
the admin and being like, you know, we, we want it to be this way and we're shutting everything down. Like, so yeah, I think that a lot of people, especially white folks, because, because for black people, I didn't, I didn't have a choice but to have these conversations with my kids because it's, it's life or death for them. So a lot of white people think that kids don't have the capacity or that you're going to shape them to be racist. And it's just like, it's the opposite. If you don't have these conversations, you're going to shape them to be racist because the society's racist and they're going to make their own conclusions when they see that, you know, the Native Americans were wiped out and all the black people are in jail. Well, it must be because they're bad unless you explain, no, it's white supremacy. So anyway, so yeah, I have a podcast. I also have an episode called White People, which all the white people should listen to. And I don't hold back and you need it. You need me to not hold back because that's the only way you're going to improve. So um, I have a podcast, Healing Racism in Schools. My Gmail is also Healing Racism in Schools at Gmail for schools who want to get in contact with me. And then I have a, f- a free Facebook group, The Anti-Racist Educator, Fighting White Supremacy in Schools. That is a ton of um, resources available for educators. Um, and it's a great community of 200 educators so far um, who are also there to help facilitate and help um, these discussions. And then also LinkedIn, which is where we met. I go hard on LinkedIn. I know, I know, I know. I see it all the time and I love it. And I learn a lot from you. And uh, I know that there's so many people that I've connected with that are in this space and that have loud voices and, and they have uh, things to say. And Honestly, that's that has contributed massively to my own wokeness uh, because um, you know I, I I grew up in a privileged white area, so Michigan. So we said Rockford, Michigan. Good lord! So I'm like you know I still am on my own even journey, journey. of Me too. anti-racism and decolonization and, uh, and decolonizing the, your own mind, right? Exactly, decolonizing yeah. my own mind. And um, unlearning, and that's what so much of this is, is unlearning what I've been taught and learning what the the reality of a lot of situations are and and having more empathy and being more understanding. And and, uh, and, and in my unlearning, I've learned that I used to really be an advocate for, you know, people, people are responsible for their own selves. Pull yourselves up by your bootstraps. There's nothing stopping you. We all have the same 24 hours in a day. Well, None of that's true. <laughs> the 24 hours of the day are not the same. Because some of, some people have 24 hours in a day where they're completely supported and they have every tool that they need and they don't have to worry about being um, assaulted or attacked or murdered, having their children murdered for mm-hmm. buying a candy and walking with a hood on or, or sleeping in their bed. They don't have to worry about those things. And the way you have to navigate your world to try to avoid, like it it, it makes you crazy to be like, well, it's just like you're saying, like we don't all have the same 24 hours because like for me as a black person, I don't like to to be traveling at night, right? It's still a sundown town as far as I'm concerned. So it's like, I got to do things before five o'clock. As a woman, I don't like to be traveling at night. And then when you're talking about it's about like the same 24 hours, like I remember I went to the bank yesterday and like it was in, it was in East side San Jose, which is a predominantly um, brown, brown area. And the bank wasn't just dis- wasn't distinguishing any money. It wasn't giving out any money. And then I yeah. went to another bank and it didn't have an ATM. And I thought about, I have a car, but what if I had been on the bus, right? Ridden all day to go to this bank to try to get my money. Now the bank doesn't work. Now I got to go to another bank. Like that's, it's not the same 24 hours. Like that could be four hour, four hour trip. You know, me just trying to get money to feed my kids. Like the, the, that could be devastating for people. Right. Like, yeah. <sighs> yeah. 
And I think that we're, we're all fed that, like what you're saying about um, the bootstraps and the meritocracy. And, you know, we're, we're all conditioned to su- sustain white supremacy. And it starts with our schools. Like, did you get a multicultural uh, education growing up in Michigan? <laughs> Hell no. <laughs> Rockford, Michigan, no. <laughs> like I said, it was less than 1%. Brown, I mean, I don't even think it was, I don't even know what percent. I mean, I remember that there was a couple of Hispanic kids and then uh, one or two black kids. And then later in high school, my, my class had a hundred and low one hundreds of graduating class for my graduating class. And there was, it, you know, four or five more black children or students showed up when I was older, but it was still very, very white. And um, so, yeah, it was grew up a white, white schooling. And where did you get your history? Where did you see your people? Then? Yeah. Or, did you? No, did you see I, your, did you? No, I only saw my people through like books that my mother gave me or, uh, and it was still, I wasn't really, really into it, into it until yeah. I got older. And then, you know, when I was a kid, my mom would be like, oh, you know, look at this. Look at these pictures. Learn about this. I'm like, yeah, I have other th- I'm playing the guitar right now. You know, I'm like. That, that, that's not social currency. Like me, me advancing my knowledge about black people does not make me any popular with all these white kids. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> true. It doesn't translate into, you know, Zach Morris wanting to date me. Like, you know, you know what I'm saying? It, yeah. it, it makes you more foreign. It makes you more different. Right. So I remember that too. Like I had a real aversion to learning black history because I saw my sister learning it and getting really upset and getting mad at white people. And my whole world was white. So I was like, I can't afford to be upset and mad at white people. Like, and that again is not going to help the blonde hair, blue eyed boy have a crush on me if I'm highlighting my blackness. So it's kind of uncool to learn your history. It's not mainstream. Like, uh, well, this is the other thing I forgot to mention. Uh, <laughs> when I was um, when I was enrolled in school, uh, we were living in Oklahoma, and it was like first grade or preschool or whatever. But my mom, it was like getting closer to the date to school and my mom's like well i haven't received any information so she goes up to the school and she's like well my son's you know what happened we haven't received anything school's gonna start tomorrow or the next day and the the woman who was working in the office she revealed to my mother that they threw away my registration because it said two eagles and they were like this can't possibly be a person and so they (laughs) threw it away and at that point my mother decided Uh that she registered me as Benji Marcus and, and that my grandfather's name was Ben. Uh, well, I had two grandfathers, my white grandfather was Max and my uh, Pueblo grandfather was Ben. So she named me Ben and, and I went through by the name Benji Marcus until I was 17 in my senior year. And I decided that that year that I was going to reveal my heritage and my, my heritage name. So then I started that school year as two Eagles Marcus and, that was, um, that was like, man, I was just like, oh my God, this is, I'm doing this. I'm, I'm going to claim my, my heritage right now. In that first, you know, I was a sweating bullets. I bet. And then that first class, it was a typing class and she's naming everybody off and I'm just like getting all sweaty. And she says, two Eagles, Marcus, two, or like two Eagles, Marcus, you know what I mean? Like the mm-hmm. question. And then she's right. like looking around and all the students are like, and then Who I'm, the hell's that? I'm right here. And they're like, you know, they just give me this look of like shock. 
And then uh, we just proceeded. And then I had to go through the whole day like that. But, you know, even today, every single day, people message me on LinkedIn or, or they, they're like, hey, Marcus, I just I, wanted I to- I did it to you earlier. Yeah, so like, I'm like, okay, well, there's 770 million people on LinkedIn. How many of them have their first name listed last? Uh, so that's just one, one more reminder every day that uh, I'm Native American and that I'm different than everyone else. And it, that just shows that the white supremacy and, and, the, and the, stand, the white standard of the first name last, like my name was Ben Marcus. Everybody's like, hey, Ben, what's up? But because it's two egos, hey, Marcus, you know. And, and that hesitancy, because I talk about that, too, with names. Um, so often we have to whitewash our name because that's, you know, what society wants. But, and I know that for me, for me, even as I know that as a teacher, I've seen myself has ha like skip over or like or hesitate or, you know, when it's when it's a name that I'm unfamiliar with. And it's and it's, it's, it's that conditioning. It's that conditioning. Um also spirit animal. Like I read this recently and I was thinking about it recently, but I know I've said that like, Oh, something, something's my spirit animal. And I reflected about it later. Like, I think that was cultural appropriation. So yeah, there's a lot, there's a lot. And I think that it's not, it's, it's not about demonizing ourselves for in, you know, ingesting it. It's just like, it's just like COVID's in the air. You know what I mean? Like it, it, you can't help but ingest it, but we can recognize it and we can acknowledge it. Like, like, I talk about how I know that anti-blackness exists within other people because it exists within me. Like anti-womanness, yeah. anti-women stuff exists within me. I remember I was at, um, I was getting my phone repaired and I was, I, I was waiting for my repair person to show up. And I, and I remember wanting it to be a male and I caught myself like, what, like, what kind of, what is this? Right. What is this? That's weird. <laughs> but, but I wanted it to be a male. Cause I was like, Oh, they know technology better. And it's just like, Oh, I mean, yeah, that, that was, those that are the was struggles we all have. Like, but again, I'm not, I'm not demonizing myself. When I see that it's, it's an opportunity for me to reflect on this is like within people, right? Like, but I, I can, I can acknowledge it. Right. I can, I can see it. And I, and I'm not like, Oh, you're such a bad person, Charlotte. No, I'm a, I'm American. Gosh, darn it. Like I'm, a, I'm American. Like I've ingested all the bullshit. But most of us won't even acknowledge the book. Like, it's, like, it's like I'm barfing something up and I, I'll take the time to look at it and be like, yeah. oh, what's that? How did that get there? Rather than just barfing it up and then throwing it away like you're not like you're not barfing things up. Like, I'm not the only one that recognizes their anti-blackness. I'm not the only one that recognizes, you know what I mean? That's why I get mad at white people where I'm just like, you're so full of shit right now because I have it within me. But the difference is, is that it also, it oppresses me. It uplifts you, right? Like even if you and I were hating on each other, you know, you're hating on me as a black person. I'm hating on you as a Native American. That still oppresses both of us and uplifts white supremacy. And that's the difference right. between like, you know, white racism and like our bigotry. Like, 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 I, it bothers me when white people or people want to equate like blacks and whites as the same, or even like natives and whites as the same. It's like, you didn't. There was no genocide, right? Like, I'm, I'm sorry, I didn't enslave your people for for gen for for centuries. So it's like my dislike for your people will never be the same for your dislike for me. And also, I feel like it's inhumane for you to expect me not to dislike you. It's like, if you killed my, beat my puppy to death, I would feel some type of way about you. Y'all beat my puppy to death for 400 years. Y'all still beating my puppy to death. And I've never had time to recover it. You've never apologized. You've never acknowledged it. You didn't buy me a new puppy, but I'm supposed to be like on some, let's just all heal and get along. Let's just all just be good. No, that's not. So I think it's important to make that distinction that 
A, when people of color are hating on each other or when women are hating on each other, you know, we're still uplifting the patriarch. It's not the same. And a distinction between, you know, the history. It's not a, just a difference of, you know, like a lot of white people in the white, fra- white fragility think it's about, you don't like me because I'm black, Charlotte, and my, and, my, and my feelings are so hurt. And it's like, I wish that that's all I had to worry about is you don't like me rather than you can kill me with impunity. You could walk into my house right now and put a, and, and, and kill me on, the, on video and still like be able to justify and, and you're mentally ill or, you know, whatever your justification is going to be where you, where my life doesn't matter. That's what I care about. You know what I mean? Yeah. So I'm always on a tangent, but it's always related. So. <laughs> <laughs> It's all irrelevant. It's all relevant. And it, and, it, and, it, and, it, and it makes me angry. And what you said about your name is like, that's really deep. You know, it's really when I, deep. When I have every DNI consultant that I meet call me Marcus, I'm like, what the fuck do you know about DNI? <laughs> the but first thing out very, the dude is you're calling me Marcus. I think that's important to bring up, you know, and, what, and why do we hesitate? Like why I, I saw myself do it too. And, it, and I know part of it is that, you know, we're familiar with Marcus. We always go with what we're familiar with, right? We, we change the name into something that is familiar, but that is also centering whiteness. And, and it's just the fact that, that the, the original people still feel so marginalized. It's just, it's just insane in this country. I mean, that really talk, I, I really speaks to who we are as a country, but just the way that we treated the native and the way we treated my people. Like you can say in the proofs in the pudding, so, because your name should be normalized, your name should be normalized, and Native American names should be normalized, but they're not. It will when I get done with it. Good. <laughs> <laughs> so you, we've had. Oh my gosh, today has been amazing and incredible. I really appreciate your time today, Charla. I'm so glad to have met you and finally been able to talk to you in person. It really, um, I really am excited and happy to be able to. To help tell your story and, and put you out there in front of people. And I really appreciate all the work you do. And I'm, I'm definitely going to be learning more and looking more into what you're offering and see how I can share that with our school district and see how I can get you connected. So one more time, just tell me all the ways that you can get connected so people can track you down. LinkedIn, Instagram. Healing race in schools at Gmail is the best way to contact okay. me. And again, that's schools with an S. So healing racism in schools at Gmail. And then my podcast. So my podcast is going to keep you abreast of any, whatever I'm currently doing at the end of the podcast. I generally talk about whatever's coming up. Um, And that is also called healing racism in schools. And then my free Facebook group is the anti-racist educator fighting white supremacy in schools. So that part is in parentheses, fighting white supremacy in schools. And then also LinkedIn, Charlotte Stevens and the ancestors and Instagram. I'm trying to build my network there. Charlotte Stevens and the Ancestors on Instagram. And I wanted to thank you, Two Eagles, because I had, <laughs> I really just jumped in. I was like, okay, yeah, we're going to do this podcast thing. Everybody else's podcast, like a half an hour. So um, I thought it'd be a half an hour, but we've been talking for almost two hours. But I really appreciate you as well and just um, your candor and allowing me to feel comfortable enough to, um, to be real. And also, it was, it was really cool to talk to somebody indigenous you know and to, and to hear that perspective and to see some of the similarities and and the differences um i really appreciate that and i'll definitely be circling back to get you on all right <laughs> i love it yeah all right shiloh thank you so much and we'll talk to you soon 
All right. Thank you so much, too. Take care. Take care. Thank you so much for joining us today. I am your host, Two Eagles Marcus, founder of Empowered X, Empowered Business, and Empowered Talent. If you haven't already, please subscribe and leave a five-star review on the Empowered X channel to get weekly access to the BIPOC action takers and change makers in business, entrepreneurship, and social justice. Remember, there is no community without unity, and it is essential that we all work together to ensure a prosperous and sustainable future. Stay strong, never stop learning, and never stop moving forward.